1: This is a place for wrong thinkers to gather, to question the narrative, gain a little strength and encouragement from knowing that, first of all, you're not alone. And secondly, your mind is not playing tricks on you. There's an actual war on reality. And if you continue to cling to reality, well, my friend, you're going to be labeled a wrong thinker, among other things. That's probably the nicest thing someone will call you. But uh, it's an essential part of owning your worldview, holding on to your autonomy. There's a big difference, you see, between, uh, you know, I just want to do whatever I want to do and you don't have a right to force me to do things that I do not want to do, that my conscience will not let me do. So with that uh, beginning, let's let's dive right in. First of all, got some sponsors I want to thank who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Life Saving Food, also Monticello College, Sewing and Quilting Center, HSL Ammo. And Dixie Chiropractic. I'm trying to think where to begin. And actually, I think, may I share a story with you? With your permission, may I please tell you? I had the most remarkable conversation with a couple of friends. And they're going to blush when I tell you. I, Ruben and Amanda have been friends of mine. I've known them for quite a long time. We met in southern Utah in uh, in a homeschooling community. And uh, and I've run into them a few times over the years. They've kind of been all over the place. I've been all over the place you know um fate has taken us all in different directions but i had the chance to sit down and have dinner with them on saturday night and it was it was one of those conversations that i came away from feeling like you know it was a good meal it was a great little restaurant that we ate at but i felt so nourished in a in a spiritual sense in just a a sense of i was encouraged that you know what we can do this um and i say this because uh, ruben and amanda are they are can-do people. They're, they're, I, I really look up to them. And so I know they're blushing for sure by now. But it was so interesting to hear their story of, of how their life has shifted and changed in ways that they hadn't ex- expected. And I'm talking some pretty big shifts. These are things that uh, I don't think any of us would just shrug off as, oh, well, you know, every so often there's a turn in the road or a curve ahead. No, it's we're talking, you know, some really big life-altering shifts and yet they come through with such a sense of of faith and positivity and and I guess that's this is the thing I want to share with you this is why I felt so incredibly encouraged because I recognize a similar pattern in my own life and that is the more rigid we become in you know well you know things have got to be this way I, my my job has got to provide this much and I've got to live in a house with this much square footage and You know, my car must be this new or have this much horsepower, whatever. Some of the silly things that we use to measure whether we are normal or or worse, whether we are attaining the proper status, they're all temporary. And none of them really matter as much as what kind of impact are you having on the world? And I'm going to take this in a slightly uncomfortable direction for some. How closely are you allowing the divine to guide where you're going and who you are becoming. Now, I understand that's a scary thought for people, especially for people who don't necessarily believe in God. It's like, whoa, (laughs) oh, you want me to turn over control of my life or uh, turn over the steering in my life, you know, to a being that I may not even know for sure exists? And it's a real personal thing, so I'm not going to tell you, yes, that's exactly what you have to do. All I can say is, having observed it in my own life and seeing the places that I have been able to go where I really wouldn't have chosen this, at least not on my own. I wouldn't have have said, yeah, that's what I want to do. But when I have have found the the courage to let go and trust that God has something in store for me, in other words, I'm looking for whatever open door he's provided. And there have been a few times, you know, doors have, have shut on me suddenly, and I went, wow, did not see that coming, but okay, let's see what comes next. And every time I have done that with an eye towards, I'm going to ask God to show me, you know, where my steps need to go next. I've never been disappointed, and this is not to say it. Everything's been easy and everything's been great. And, you know, it's just been nothing but sunshine and roses. And I don't think uh, I don't think Reuben and Amanda would say the same thing either. But as they as they shared with me some of their journey, I just came away feeling so encouraged. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is not because I feel like, you know, you didn't get enough in Sunday school yesterday, so here I go, you know, offering some supplemental material. What struck me was the peace and, and confidence that, uh, that I could see in their demeanor and feel in that conversation with them. I mean, they're just, they're, they're aware of what's going on but they're not living in a constant state of anxiety. And and by the way, the flip side of this is people who live in a state of depression who are always looking back at, oh, this is what I had, and this is what could have been. And, 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 And Amanda said something to me that this is the crux of what I want to give to you today. The present, right now, is all that we have. None of us are guaranteed the future. You don't know You know, you could have a heart attack in the next 10 seconds. You could step out the door and lightning could strike. I don't know. None of us is guaranteed what is to come. And to waste time looking back over our shoulders and regretting lost opportunities or even just looking over our shoulders and trying to live in the glory days and celebrate, oh, that's when everything went right and that's when everything was good. You'll never be happy if your focus and your presence can't be right here and now, and that may sound kind of strange from a guy who you know on a daily basis is uh, you know telling you, hey, here's more of the bad news of what's going on around us. But I so agree with with her observation that you know this is this is the place to be now. Focus on what's going on now, and that means yes, be aware, but also have confidence. And learn to recognize right now is a moment in which you could ask for and receive help. Call it God. Call it the universe. I just can't understate how important or can't overstate rather how important that that dynamic is to having peace of mind in times that are just really crazy. How crazy are the times? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to I'm going to share a couple of thoughts with you on this. One of the things I'm going to be sharing with you today is an article from Doug Casey about signs of rapid cultural decline and what comes next. Now, I limit my amount of time on social media, especially over the weekend. That's one of the few times I get to unplug from the matrix and focus on family. I spend a lot of time just sitting and watching storms come through where I live. And we had some doozies. Wow, <laughs> some really good ones. But I caught a little bit of... Uh, conversation on Twitter over the weekend, and apparently, um, you know, this, of course, this is Pride Month, you you might have missed it, uh, there are some rainbow flags here and there, and every corporation is, you know, pandering to the LGBTQ community, but what really struck me was there was a lot of controversy about a show down in Texas, in Dallas, called Drag Your Child to Pride, and it was, it was a drag show, it was Drag Queen's, parading around, gyrating, you know, accepting tips, you know, here, tuck a dollar bill here um, from children, little children, toddlers, infants being held on their parents' laps. And the reason this was on Twitter was because there was was kind of a counter, there was a protest group out there of people who were just simply saying, why are you doing this to kids? Why are you exposing kids to this? And I hope you understand, I'm, I'm, not encouraging you to be enemy-driven. You should hate, you know, drag artists. You should hate, you know, you know, the LGBTQ crowd. I'm not encouraging you to hate anybody. But I think at some point we should be able to, to say without apology, that's not right. I mean, do you remember there was a time when people would say, well, you know, what goes on in a person's bedroom is, uh, that's private, that's, you know, between them and their partner, assuming, you know, their partner is a consenting adult we come a long way from that. And now you see it in the schools. I mean, look, critical race theory is one thing, but there seems to be a very clear push, at least on the part of the political left, to sexualize and to bring sexuality discussions into the classroom. I saw a meme the other day of a bunch of bored kids sitting there, can we learn math? And the teacher's like, no, I'm not done talking about my sexuality yet. And it was interesting how utterly... Um, defensive and angry the parents of these little children were when people questioned, Why are you taking your kid to a show like this? And there was at least one instance of some reporter had asked a little a little boy, you know, because the little boy looked really bored. He's like, hey, do you even want to be here? And the kid's like, No, I'm not gay. And the mother jumped in and cried, Oh, you he certainly is. He yes, he is gay. I mean, there was a time when I think people would have said It would be monstrous for someone to suggest that they should help their child, you know, become gay. In fact, you know, the LGBT crowd say you can't do that. They're either born that way or not. But that sure looks like what we're seeing here. Could our culture really be in decline? And if so, what can we do about it? How can we keep our sanity? We'll talk about that.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I want to tell you about Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. His office is located in St. George. Check out his website, DixieChiro.com. This should be of particular interest to anyone who is dealing with neuropathy. If that is the case, by the way, ask about the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. If you have bulging herniated discs... Here's a $99 intro special with two treatments plus massage. And if you have car accident injuries, DixieChiro.com can help you. In fact, often you'll find out your insurance has a special you know, amount of money for you if you're in a car accident, specifically for this kind of thing. DixieChiro.com. Just uh, click on the link I provide in my show notes at the Brian Hyde Show.com. Let Dixie Chiropractic know you appreciate them sponsoring this program. All right, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, a return to normalcy because there are some things that make me believe, oh, we can do it. We can do it. And then there are some stubborn facts that pop up and I realize, okay, not until we've addressed a few things that just won't go away. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, has a great article on how elections won't fix this. And what he's talking about is our current battle with entrenched bureaucracy. He says, Americans have limitless faith in democracy in the early 19th century that charmed Alexis de Tocqueville. His book, Democracy in America, still rings true today because not that much has changed. The entire country can be in ruins. And even then, most people, most people figure it will all be improved or even solved come November. Now, his point is, this has been going on for our entire history. As a people, we believe our elections are what keep the people and not the dictators in charge. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, surely some of this faith is simply is necessary simply because it's the only option that we have. The sitting president and his party are in deep trouble now. Most observers are predicting a rout in the midterm elections, granting us an additional two years of painful inflation plus recession unfolding amidst what will surely be a brutal political stalemate and cultural upheaval. Then November will come again with it another round of trust that a new president will figure something out. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says the faith in our elected leaders is belied by the experiences of the last 30 months. To be sure, the elected politicians are nowhere near blameless in what unfolded, and they could have done far more to stop the disaster. For example, Trump could have sent Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx packing, maybe. The Republicans could have voted no on trillions in spending. Did they really have a choice? And Biden could have renormalized the country. Why didn't he? Instead, they all went along with what? With advisors from the bureaucracies, the people who have de facto run this country for this entire grim period. In fact, he says, reading Scott Atlas's book, one comes away with a very strange picture of how Washington worked in its first year of the pandemic. Once Trump gave the green light to lockdowns, the permanent bureaucracy had everything it needed. In fact, this happened before Trump even approved it. The Department of Health and Human Services had already released its lockdown blueprint on March 13th of 2020, a document to which it had already been for weeks in the preparation. After the March 16th press conference, there was no going back. The deep state, and he says by which I mean the permanent non-appointed bureaucracy and the pressure groups to which it answers, was running the show. Now, the administrative state has not enjoyed such a good run since World War II or perhaps much earlier, if ever. These were certainly the salad days, merely by assigning a bureaucrat to type on a screen. The CDC could make every retail business in the U.S., install plexiglass, force people to stand six feet apart, make the human face publicly invisible, close or open whole industries at will, and even scrap religious services and singing. Now, to be sure, these were mere recommendations, but cities and states and corporations deferred for fear of liability should something go wrong. And the CDC provided the cover, but acted pretty much like a dictator. We know this for certain, given the CDC's response to the Florida judge's decision to declare the transportation mask mandate illegal. The response was not that the mandate was both compliant with the law and necessary for public health. No, instead, the agency and the Biden administration, too, rallied around a simple point. This judge's decision cannot stand because courts should have no authority to override the bureaucracy. They actually said it. They demand total, unchecked, unquestioned power, period. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this is alarming enough, but it speaks to a much larger problem. And that is a hegemonic, bureaucratic class that is not controlled by the political class and believes that it possesses total power. The implications extend far beyond the CDC. It applies to every executive agency of the federal government. They ostensibly operate under the authority of the office of the president, but actually not even that's true. There are severe restrictions in place on the ability of the elected president to fire anyone among them. Trump couldn't fire Fauci, at least not easily, and he was told this repeatedly. That pertains to millions of other employees in this category. Now, this was not the traditional American system. In the days before 1880, it was routine for new administrations to toss out the old and bring in the new, and yes, of course, that included cronies. Well, that system came to be derided as the spoils system, and it was replaced by the administrative state with the Pendleton Act of 1883. This new law was passed in response to the assassination of President James Garfield. The culprit was an angry job seeker who had been rebuffed. The supposed fix, backed by Garfield's successor, Chester A. Arthur, was to create a permanent civil service, thus supposedly reducing the incentive to shoot the president. It initially pertained to only 10% of the federal workforce, but it had developed vast power by the time of the Great War. Now, he says, it wasn't until I read Alex Washburn's piece on Brownstone that the full implications became obvious. He cites the evidence of or the existence rather of something called the Chevron Doctrine of Deference to the agency. Whenever there's a question of an agency's interpretation of the law, the court should defer to the agency, not to a strict reading of the law. And he goes through this. He he provides some nice quotes. And this is something that I saw play out in in the Bundy's trial here a few years ago. Remember when Cliven Bundy was at odds with the BLM? And he went to court and fought them numerous times. Why was it that the BLM always seemed to come out on top? It certainly wasn't because, well, they had the moral high ground or even they had the legal high ground. There were times when the BLM was stopped. So what did they do? Well, they simply changed their rules, went back to court and the judge says, oh, these are the rules. Well, then they're right. Do you understand how that works? You're playing a game, let's say a board game with someone, but they have the ability to change the rules at their whim. Like when you start to win. Oh, well, now there's a new rule. And this is the case. Well, is this the actual rules of the game? Oh, sure enough, there it is. Yep, I have to let you win. Now, this all begs what's permissible, says Jeffrey Tucker, but the critical thing is this dramatic shift in the burden of proof. A plaintiff against an agency must now demonstrate that the agency's interpretation is impermissible. And in practice, this rule has granted tremendous latitude and power to executive agencies to rule the whole system with or without political permission. And he provides a chart that shows what this looks like. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this system is indefensible. You've got this machinery of coercion ruled in concert with a network of private sector actors, including media and financial companies that have outsized influence and routinely use these agencies as weapons in their own economic interest at the expense of everyone else. He also points out that back in the 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower decried the entire machine in his farewell address of 1961. He warned in the, he warned of the danger that public policy could itself become captive of a scientific technological elite, and Eisenhower said it is the state of, ta- of uh, the task rather of statesmanship to uphold the principles of our democratic system if ever aiming toward the supreme goals of a free society so jeffrey tucker says uprooting the entrenched arrogant hegemonic and unaccountable administrative state that believes it operates with no limits to its power is the great challenge of our time and the public is probably nowhere near aware of the full extent of the problem and until the voters themselves figure it out the politicians will have no mandate to even test a solution This is one of the reasons why I've become very politically agnostic over the last few years. I agree with H.L. Mencken and the idea that if
0: voting actually worked, they probably would have outlawed it by now. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Want to give a shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street. If you are shopping for a home, you've got to have a mortgage, you've got to have a loan, please talk to Heather. And this is true not just for my listeners in Utah, but for my listeners in Idaho as well. Patriot Home Mortgage can help you in either one of these states. And why would you go to Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Well, here's why. She has decades of experience, and she works for a company that has the clout to help you get the loan you need in a timely fashion. So, Heather's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. Call her at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS, number, or NMLS ID rather, is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, in the conversation I was having with uh, with my friends over the weekend, um, they pointed out, you know, we've noticed there are some sources that you seem to go to on a pretty regular basis, and and they're right. I'm always keeping my eyes open for good, credible sources. I I call them resources for wrong thinkers. I link to a great many of them in my uh, in my website. You can actually click on you know the resources tab and find some great resources for wrong thinkers. The Good Citizen Substack is one of my favorites. And I don't know much about the person who writes this. I don't know, I don't know their name. It's, you know They're writing under kind of a pseudonym. But man, their insights are so good. And it's informative commentary on issues that matter. And I wanted to share some excerpts with you from part two of their take on the school shooting uh, mystery machine. This is titled Shoot First, Think Never, part two. And there's a link to part one if you missed that. Part one makes the case. It ain't the guns that are, that are to blame. The Good Citizen says, as the latest current thing rolls on down the prefabricated tracks toward the intended end goals of all current things, which is less liberty for you and more power for the state, astroturfed groups funded by the usual global managers in joint efforts with, with the massagers of celebrity culture are doing their part to activate the Borg toward wanting more gun laws. And as always, all of it is cloaked in pretenses of safety and security and saving lives. Absolutely none of it is intended to actually solve the problem. Because the state is never interested in real, meaningful solutions that result in improving the quality of life for citizens. A state at perpetual war with its citizens would never create problems and then provide solutions that do not make things much, much worse for those citizens. Hoping to only create future opportunities for providing in quotation marks, suit solutions. So without chaos and disorder, moving the masses through fear and apprehension, the state's power is weakened. Politicians lose the dependency of their constituents and the ability to further entrench them in self-desired subjugation. That's precisely what more gun laws are intended to do. Now, in part one of this essay... The Good Citizen explored the fallacy of attributing mass shootings and school shootings to assault rifles and firearms in general. The entire forced debate around firearms as isolated culprits divorced from the humans that control them and their evil intentions is meant to demonize this most effective self-defense tool and make pariahs of the law-abiding citizens who seek to exercise their constitutional right to own and carry them for, for protection. Now, this is the essence of the anarcho-tyranny of conservative social scientist Samuel T. Francis. A rudimentary definition refers to armed dictatorship without rule of law or a Hegelian synthesis when the state tyrannically or oppressively regulates citizens' lives, yet is unable or unwilling to enforce fundamental protective law. So, in part two of this essay... The good citizen says we will re-engage with the humans behind the carnage of these violent premeditated acts called school shootings, which occur with greater frequency. By doing so, we might arrive at some combination of factors that approximate viable causation. Now, this can only be done properly through well-funded research, and some of it's included here, but most of what follows is merely a good citizen attempt to probe for likely culprits that work in concert to contribute to this uniquely 21st century disturbing phenomenon. Concluding with a brief look at a popular conspiracy theory around the rise in school shootings that sufficient evidence and testimony of whistleblowers reveal may no longer either be conspiracy or theory. So let's start with destroying the family. The Good Citizen says once a mere talking point of evangelicals and social conservatives... The the dedicated destruction of the family unit by society and the state is one of the gravest factors contributing to so many social ills, delinquency, crime, drug addiction, mass incarceration, and poverty, to name just a few. The ongoing social and psychological research on children who come from homes with broken marriages or single parents is often ignored by global managers and their political stooges who are intent on destroying the one institution and indicator that ensures the greatest likelihood of future success for children, the family. And here he backs it up with some charts showing the share of children born outside of marriage over time. Holy cow. From around 5% in 1960 to over 40% in our current time. He also shows a chart showing the father absence crisis in America. 18.4 million children, one in four, without a biological step or adoptive father at home. Four times greater risk of poverty, more likely to have be- behavioral problems, uh, greater risk of infant mortality, more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit a crime, more likely to become seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol more likely to suffer obesity, more likely to drop out of school. And then there's a chart showing the decline of marriages per thousand people. Boy, it really peaked right after, uh, well, in the 1950s is when marriage really peaked. But it has been on a pretty steady decline since about uh, 1980-ish and has dropped Now, as of 2018, the poverty rate for single-mother families was 34%. That's more than five times, or nearly more than five times the rate of 6% for married couple families. Over 20 million children in the U.S. alone come from broken homes or live either with a single parent or relative. And of the top 10 deadliest school shooters in the U.S., all but the Columbine duo of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, came from a broken home or adopted or had a physically or emotionally abusive parent. According to research on common attributes of 41 school shooters, the vast majority have some domestic anomaly or dysfunction. Then he gets into closing down the cuckoo's nests. Now the mainstreaming of mental illness in the tolerance and acceptance culture with which we are self-immolating allows the masses of clinically mentally ill to roam free on the streets of America. Instead of the necessary care they need, they're ignored by a callous and indifferent society who have no time for their attention or care. They're left to fall through the cracks into further unruly behavior through drug addiction, petty crimes, and at times, violent and unpredictable behavior. State mental institutions in the U.S. with a dubious history of ethical treatment are not necessarily a solution to the rise of mass and school shootings, but it is another factor worth considering in the totality of consequential social and cultural changes. The Good Citizen points out, historically, the mentally ill were locked up for their own safety, and more so for the safety of the public. Any individual who threatened violence on innocent children in the past would have at the very least been court-ordered a psychiatric evaluation and further assessment of their mental state to prevent such a destructive event from meeting innocent schoolchildren. But the masses of mentally ill nomads are now convenient tools of anarcho tyranny in blue cities and states, free to terrorize the public without consequences or legal ramifications. He also talks about the rise of narcissism and nihilism. The rise of narcissism in the 21st century is well documented in the psychological research and ubiquitously present to anyone with a discerning eye for sociocultural transformations and generational transitions. The rise of performative platforms like attention networks that allow ever-younger people to curate representations of themselves in return for fleeting, addictive, neurological rewards has immolated previous conceptions of self and self-worth and completely altered accepted customs of social relations. And this has only exacerbated the disassociation between individuals and society in favor of living through artificial perceptions of a disconnected, asynchronous digital reality where the established order is all smoke and mirrors. I'm sorry, but that one kind of hits hard. I say that as someone who has spent way too much time on social media in the past. And just for the record, I'm trying to wean myself off of social media as much as possible. Part of it is necessary because of the work that I do, and I know that's that's handy justification, right? I really need this heroin because it's part of the work that I do. But I don't think I don't think it's wrong to equate it to to heroin. Once it's been pointed out to you. In fact, once it was pointed out to me, hey, what you're really craving is that dopamine release that comes when you see, "Ooh, someone liked or shared or commented on whatever it is that I posted on social media." It's true. It's true, and if it's somebody famous who does it, you get an even bigger dopamine hit. Well, okay, admitting the problem is the
0: start. <laughs> what are the next 11 steps here? We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to give a
1: quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington and his fine ammunition company. Well, yes, they make very high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. Now, he's based in southern Utah, so if you have the option of shopping local, I would say definitely go uh, go buy what you need from Spencer at HSLAmmo.com. If uh, you're outside the area, you can still look him up on the website. You can uh, shop around. I think you're going to find the prices competitive. The quality is, of course, utmost. But you'd also be doing me a great favor by helping to support one of my fine sponsors, and I truly appreciate that. Back to our commentary from the Good Citizen Substack. Shoot first, think never. You know, you don't see a whole lot of effort on the part of the mainstream news organs to delve into what is the common thread between the people who reach that point where they break and they go out and they try to visit violence or death on as many people as they can. I know that uh, most in the press seem to have that fixation on what kind of gun did they use? What color was their skin? Because they have a narrative that they want to fit this into. But when you start looking at some of the human factors, including broken families, including, you know, the lack of, of mental health care or I know this is going to sound rude, but I'm going to say it anyways. The, the inability or the growing inability of society to call madness madness as opposed to simply, oh, that's great, let's all celebrate it and embrace it as something that's good and healthy. And then you've got the problems of nihilism and narcissism. Here the uh, the good citizen writes about how already encumbered with the stresses of fractured families, the mind-numbing and altering pills of big pharma's drug pushers, The youth of the 21st century have been captured by the lures of artificial and superficial technologies curated and engineered by the greatest social engineers in history, who openly admit their goal is to exact attention and monetize it. This renders every individual and the totality of their public and private selves an exploitable commodity. Reducing social relations further and isolating individuals onto digital islands where the only source of temporary relief from despair is to return to its very source. Reducing friendships to the click of a mouse, conversations to a character-limited blurb, and human emotions to cartoonish representations or three-character abbreviations, LOL, has completely degraded the meaning and worth of human relations. The disconnect between already unstable individuals only grows in such a society. This essence is encompassed in that sociological phrase, how we as individuals choose... To live in society. That is to say, when one looks at the totality of social ills that are mainstreamed and accepted, perhaps we increasingly don't know how to live anymore. One of the great contemporary ills described by social theorist Theodore Dalrymple is the nihilistic, decadent, and self destructive behavior of people who do not know how to live. Both the smoothing over of this behavior and the medicalization of the problems that emerge as a corollary of this behavior are forms of indifference. And society accepts this behavior instead of patiently and with an understanding of the particulars of the case, telling them that they have to live differently. And by the way, he gets into the SSRI prescriptions for adolescents, which has been on the rise since the 1990s. That's the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These are powerful psychotropic drugs that create dependency. They numb the thoughts and feelings and limit our beautiful wide range of human emotions so that individuals cannot feel any joy or euphoria with the aim of eliminating sadness or off misdiagnosed depression. They also contribute to suicidal ideation and sometimes aggressive behaviors, including homicidal ideation. That millions of American children have been prescribed these drugs is one of the greatest medical tragedies in a very long growing list of tragedies inflicted on the population by science and medicine. And if you look at these, uh, these mass shooters, particularly the young ones, so often this is one of the common threads. I, in fact, I'm not aware of any of them that weren't on these SSRI drugs. Then you have state operations, which is mind control. And I know this is where people are like, okay, now we're veering off excuse me, into conspiracy theory. Uh, no, no. This is, if you have ever studied the CIA's infamous MKUltra program, which sought to manipulate individuals using advanced hypnosis techniques and overt mind control, that was a real thing. If you've ever studied things like uh, their Operation Mockingbird, which embedded CIA-controlled sources or journalists within the American news media, that's a real thing. Just look at the number of former CIA analysts that are now making the rounds on all the talk shows. Yeah, there's a reason that they're there. There's a narrative that they're out there trying to promote and support. And even when they just give you a big, bald-faced lie, you're expected to believe them. James Clapper, I'm looking in your direction. John Brennan, same thing. So here's the conclusion that the uh, good citizen comes to. The common links between school shooters... Broken homes, single-parent homes, abusive parents, neglected by parents. Fatherless homes. Epidemics of narcissism and nihilism. Copycat desires from celebrity culture and media glorification. Psychotropic drug dependency. This is the SSRIs. Isolated lone wolf. Psychological profiles. Bullied and harassed by peers or outright ignored. Social isolation. Premeditation with a dedication to studying past shooters, their manifestos, and logistical efforts. And a history of abuse, online threats, and verbal threats to carry out the act. Now, all of the above is ignored by authorities with mass surveillance operations against healthy law-abiding citizens. When considering the FBI conducted 3.4 million unconstitutional, warrantless searches of American citizens' online behavior in a single year one has to wonder what the hell they're really researching or investigating. Is it possible they're actively seeking out youth across the country who check all the boxes of future school shooters and then doing absolutely nothing to prevent them from obtaining the weapons needed to carry out the act? The FBI has long been the Federal Bureau of Incitement. January 6th of last year only cemented this legacy for the most useless federal secret police organization. Where was the FBI to stop the latest school shooter. The Uvalde, Texas shooter checked all of the above boxes, even had a laundry list of red flags that were ignored. He openly bragged about shooting up a school, about accumulating an arsenal for the job. Hell, his Wendy's drive through colleagues gave him the nickname School Shooter. So if the aim of gun control is to go after the law-abiding citizens and to, go to outright desecrate the Second Amendment, which Papa Dementia, the executive puppet, installed through a rigged election by global managers openly admitted this past week that the Constitution was not absolute. Well, then Morse mass shootings and school shootings would be the most effective method of assimilating the mindless Borg to this latest current thing and its prescribed solution to disarm law-abiding Americans. That a government at war with its citizens across multiple fronts would not engineer actions, intentionally ignore red flags, and push individuals to commit these atrocities with greater frequency and viciousness cannot be ruled out. Wow. That's a hard truth, but I think it is the truth. So if there's anyone that needs the, needs saving across all of these silent war fronts, it's the citizens from the tyranny of the illegitimate perpetual police state that seeks to disarm them. The perpetual police state knows full well which tools can best perform this indispensable saving duty on behalf of resolute citizens. That's why they want to take those tools away from us. The Good Citizen says the United States is the last holdout on the global manager's map of an armed citizenry. As their Agenda 2030 timeline moves closer and accelerates, look for more mass shootings and school shootings to assist their aim of desecrating one of the wisest and most necessary amendments bestowed by the Founding Fathers. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And he finishes with a quote from Thomas Jefferson in a letter to James Madison, December twentieth, 1787. What country can preserve its liberties if its rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. I've got a link in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. A couple other articles you may want to look at, too. When reality itself is under siege, you know, uh, maintaining your perspective is going to take real conscious effort. And we may find ourselves wondering, why is everything broken? Edward Curtin has a great slant on that. I've got a link to his article. And some of us believe that our current challenges are as much spiritual as they are political. Dr. Igor Shepard asked some really probing questions in his article titled, Whose Footsteps Are We Following? Again, these are linked in the show notes at the thebrianheidshow.com. Won't cost you a thing to subscribe to my show notes. All you have to do is drop your email in the subscribe button box down there at the bottom of the page and I will send you a copy every day that I do this program thanks again for giving me a chance and uh, for engaging in wrong think by merely considering these ideas my goal is to give you information that will leave you more certain of who you are and what you stand for than uh, to give you stuff to just make you sad or angry or anxious about uh, what's going on around us these are
0: serious times we need to be serious people This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: I appreciate you uh, coming and uh, dropping by today. I'm going to make it worth your while. I've got some great content to share with you. Some top-shelf wrong think here, dude. Make yourself comfortable. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com. Probably don't have to say a whole lot more other than, uh, you know, look around you. Things aren't getting more stable. Things aren't settling down. Things are not going back to normal. Might not be a bad idea to uh, make sure you got some items that could give you the edge in terms of self-reliance. The ability to say no when someone comes by saying, hey, remember, you need me. And you can say, no, thank you. Actually, I don't. Move along. <laughs> These are not the droids you're looking for. Lifesavingfood.com. All right, here's a question to get us started here. Uh, how can you be certain that your culture is moving toward collapse? I don't know how many people would ask themselves that question, but I think it's a very relevant one. And Doug Casey, in a piece that was published earlier today on LouRockwell.com, talks about rapid cultural decline and what comes next. This is with an interview with International Man. International Man says nations in decline often experience cultural degeneracy. We saw that in the Roman Empire and at Weimar Germany, for example. Today in the US we see increasing signs of cultural degeneracy in Hollywood, advertisements, academia, science, corporations, politics, and other areas of life. And so they asked Doug Casey, Doug Doug Casey, rather, what is your take? Doug Casey responds there have been a number of major turning points throughout history. Rome in the third century was one of them. It was a period of economic, political, and military chaos aggravated by the social chaos accompanying the rise of Christianity. These things set the stage for the complete collapse of the old civilization in the West with the barbarian invasions after Adrianople in 378. Now the Renaissance changed the nature of life in Western Europe starting in the 15th century as did the Enlightenment in the 18th century and most important in many ways, the Industrial Revolution overturned the pre-existing economic order starting in the early 19th century. Whenever the public was in a frenzy about something or the other, he says, my friend Herman Kahn liked to quip, there are only two important things that have happened since the dawn of history, and this isn't one of them. Now, he was referring to the Agricultural Revolution around 5,000 years ago and the Industrial Revolution. So it's good to keep things in perspective. Now, of course, there have been plenty of bloody episodes, great discoveries, and breathtaking inventions rather along the way. The American Revolution, the French Revolution, World War I, World War II, the collapse of the USSR, and the rise of China are among them. But in that great sweep of history, they're really just footnotes. Doug Casey says it bears emphasis, though, that almost everything of any importance that has happened in the last 500 years has been about or because of Western civilization. Now, they all had various effects, but none of them really attacked the basis of Western civilization itself. Psychopaths like Marx, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao were even in their heydays just really jackals barking at a lion. But then things started changing in the 1960s. The 60s were fun at the time, but from a cultural viewpoint, they turned out to be an overture to the collapse of Western Civ. You may recall the motto of many college students at the demonstrations was, Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. Now he says there were yahoos, of course, but it's actually happening now, 60 years later. Thomas Cole's superb series of five paintings, The Course of Empire, done about 200 years ago, says it all. The thing to remember is that Western civilization is built on a certain set of values and virtues that have given the world something unique in history. Before the rise of Western Civ, people everywhere in the world survived by piling sticks and stones on top of one another and grubbing for roots and berries, freezing in the winter and starving in the spring, expecting an early and likely violent death. Western Civ changed the very nature of life. It is, in fact, the only civilization worth talking about. China may have given the world Taoism, martial arts, and General So's chicken. India developed yoga, and curries are tasty, but on the whole, Ayn Rand was right when she said East minus West equals zero. We're now undergoing our own great cultural revolution, and it's much more serious than what the Chinese attempted in the 1960s. Why? Because a whole complex of destructive ideas have now captured the apparatus of most governments, academia, media, entertainment, charities, and large corporations. The public has been both subtly and overtly indoctrinated for generations, His point is it's not easy to reverse a trend this large. Now he says, maybe you think I'm being too inflammatory. Perhaps you don't believe Western civilization in general and the idea of America in particular are dying. And Doug Casey says, fair enough. But let me give you a dozen things that made Western civilization in America not only unique, but vastly better than any other country or civilization in history. He says, I've listed 12 concepts. These things are the essence of Western Civ and are unique to it. And he says, ask yourself if attitudes toward them haven't changed radically in recent years. Ask yourself if the trend towards the collapse of the West hasn't accelerated since then. So check out these 12 concepts. Number one, free thought has been replaced by political correctness, and it's discouraged. We're approaching the stage of Orwellian thought crime. Number two, free speech is subject to cancel culture at universities, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and society in general. In totalitarian societies, free speech is a cause for imprisonment or worse. We're headed in that direction. Number three, free markets mean the freedom to act. They're gone as an ideal replaced by socialism as a goal. Regulation is now considered essential by most people. Number four, Limited government has been replaced by state control of almost everything. Number five, individualism is seen as bad or at least antisocial. Identity politics is preferred. You're not an individual so much as a member of a race or a party. Number six, rationality is white and therefore racist. Science, logic, and fact are replaced by superstition. Groupthink is the new secular religion. Number seven, liberty is seen as a danger. Snowflakes need shelter in in safe spaces for fear of being triggered. Number eight, the concept of progress is dangerous because it leads to inequality and no one should be left behind. Number nine, privacy has been replaced by transparency. God forbid you might have a secret. Everything is monitored. The Chinese social credit system is becoming a model. Number 10, property rights. Forget about it. You'll own nothing and better be happy. On the bright side, your masters may give you food, housing, education, meds, and a guaranteed annual income if you're obedient. Number 11, the rule of law is gone, replaced by thousands of micro-rules. Everything that's not obligatory is forbidden. And number 12, industry and enterprise are evil since they lead to greed, inequality, and using the planet's resources. Now, he says, statists and collectivists have largely succeeded in corrupting the public's attitudes toward the 12 things which made the West unique. And this trend is accelerating, and trends uh, tend to stay in motion until they reach reach a crisis. Once they reach a crisis, it's called a revolution in the case of a country or a collapse in the case of a civilization. And things usually get even worse, at least for a while. Now, there's much more to be said about the 12 attitudes and institutions that he's listed, but... It's not just a matter of academic or philosophic interest, because when these foundations of civilization disappear, the good things they brought us will also wash away. They're essential to everything. Art, music, literature, science, and technology. They're the basis of our high standard of living. Other civilizations, like the Japanese and Chinese, have based their progress on adopting these Western attitudes and principles. But just as they've been accused of copying machines and technologies, it's arguable that they've only mimicked Some of these values, Africa, most of Asia and the third world generally haven't even done that. He says, I doubt these 12 things are in the cultural DNA anywhere outside of the West and they're being deleted from the West. So if you're looking for a template of what could happen in the U.S. and all over the world in this coming decade, you might take a look at some of the recent news articles on Sri Lanka. Doug Casey says, my guess is that for years to come, we're going to see a serious devolution of civilization everywhere. The world has become top-heavy with the fruits of civilization. Hundreds of, minds, hundreds of millions rather, rely on those fruits with no clue about how they came about. Meanwhile, the roots of the tree that produced them are rotting. As a result, we could be looking at not just a historic financial meltdown accompanied by a really serious economic upheaval with wars and serious shortages, but an overthrow of traditional cultural norms, social chaos, political totalitarianism, Of course, mankind has survived all that for five millennia or so, so far. And he says, I suppose we'll handle this as well. There will just be more unpleasantness and inconvenience than usual in the decade to come. My friend, this is why you and I need to be able to think clearly and independently and see what's happening around us and to remain tethered to reality rather than just carried along with the currents of whatever insanity is in fashion at the moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I don't know if you've had the chance to see the documentary What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. I was uh, grateful to my friend Tyler for sending me a link last week, and and I was able to watch this. It was on Odyssey. I tried to share the link in my show notes. I was like, this is great. I'm going to share this with my listeners. I'm going to give them a chance to look look at it for themselves. And when I put up the link, I pulled it up. Um, Odyssey had said, well, due to an international copyright claim, we are not allowed to show you this content. So, yep, the forces are at work to keep Matt Walsh from getting his message out there, but Holy cow, it is a well-done film. And if you want a glimpse into the disconnect from reality that is becoming normalized in our society and held by school teachers and professors and even medical personnel as well as politicians, Matt does a wonderful job of showing it. I, I want to share with you actually a review from Andrea Whitberg from AmericanThinker.com. She talks about uh, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman, Both Entertaining and important she says Matt Walsh a conservative writer and speaker as well as being he often points out a best-selling children's book author and one-time top seller on Amazon's LGBTQ book list takes very seriously the increasingly aggressive push to manipulate children's perception of the perception rather of their biological gender to that end he travels across America and halfway around the globe seeking the answer to one simple question what is a woman And the video he's created about his search is at one and the same time funny, frustrating, and very depressing. Now, the movie reflects Walsh's sardonic humor, acidly accurate insights, and willingness to risk unpleasant confrontations. Over the course of the movie, he interviews a variety of people who both support and oppose the transgenderification of American culture, and especially American children. In addition... He asks ordinary Americans and Maasai tribespeople in Africa the same question. Now, the former have embraced postmodernism. Nothing is real. There's no truth. Only feelings matter. Well, the African tribesmen don't have time for postmodern nonsense. Andrea Whitberg says one of the things that's immediately obvious about the movie is that those who oppose transgender madness know precisely what a woman is. It is an adult female. She may be a masculine woman, but she is and will always be a woman. The movie's emotional heart is Scott Nugent, a woman who has gone through the full panoply of chemicals and surgeries to make her look like a man. And indeed, from the neck up, she really does look like a balding, pudgy, middle-aged man, complete with a five o'clock shadow, a voice sounding like a man who's had just a little whiff of helium. From the neck down, all the surgeries in the world, including stripping skin and muscle off her left forearm to create illusory male genitalia, cannot change her body habitus, which is that of a chubby woman. Nugent is, struck, is stuck with her male body, complete with chronic infections, multiple surgical inventions interventions, rather, and deadly chemicals that inevitably lead to cancer. Despite, or probably because of that, she is fiercely opposed to early chemical and surgical treatment for children because they are incapable of understanding what's being done to them. Nugent also notes that the real issue is money. Gender transformations are hugely profitable for surgeons and pharmaceutical companies. Now, one of the doctors making money with this surgery is a man named Marcy Bowers, who is himself a product of surgery and chemicals to create the illusion that he is a woman. To see Bowers' feigned inability to understand that there's no difference between A trans-abled person wanting a healthy limb amputated, which Bowers characterizes as abnormal, and a transgender person wanting to remove breasts or a penis is really something. There's also Michelle Forcier, a Brown University-affiliated pediatrician who absolutely refuses to answer the question, what is a woman? She explains that even babies are gender-sensitive and toddlers know what gender they want to be. She's also serenely certain that puberty blockers, which are also used to chemically castrate sex offenders and that can destroy bone density, among other things, are just a magical pause in puberty without any lasting consequences. On the side of madness, Walsh also interviews the sweet, happy Gert Comfrey, a licensed therapist who's clearly a woman, but who claims to have no idea what a woman is because she isn't one and a gender and sexual sexuality studies professor who is incredibly squirrely as he tries desperately to avoid the central question on the same side he talks to Miriam Grossman a genuine psychologist who salvages the damage from the trans salvages the damage from the transgender movement another therapist who works with transgender uh, people but is worried about what's being done to children a former academic who left the field because of the pressure to get on board the transgender train An anonymous Canadian man who faces prison time for misgendering his 13-year-old daughter after a hospital began giving her hormone treatments thanks to a Canadian law that does not require parental permission. And Jordan Peterson, who has refused to be forced into using people's preferred pronouns. And through it all, Walsh is quiet and persistent. He's never offensive. But like the best kind of interviewer, he forces activists to confront the giant holes in their logic. At which time, some of them got very defensive and hostile, including Mark Takano, a gay Asian congressman who, upon realizing he was sounding like an idiot, kicked Walsh out of his office. The the one downside of the movie is that it's expensive. To watch it, you have to buy an insider subscription currently on sale for $9 a month. And Andrew Woodbrook says, I was initially loath to do so, although I'm a huge Matt Walsh fan. However, to its credit, Daily Wire is trying to set itself up as an alternative to Hollywood by making documentaries, adventure movies, comedies, and other content. So she says, if I want to see Hollywood's hold on popular culture weekend, I need to be willing, if I can, to support the alternative. So yes, you do have options, and Andrea Woodberg actually provides a link in her her uh, article that takes you to where you can purchase the movie. If you're going to do it, I would really recommend get a group of friends together. In fact, you know, don't just, you know, don't just watch it. Okay, well, I've watched it. I can check off that box. What you really ought to do is get a group of people together, maybe in a nice community setting. Watch the movie and then have some discussion, some colloquia afterwards. What are people's observations? You know, you're going to find not everybody agrees entirely with how the movie is presented. But I think Andrew Woodberg does a very good job of reviewing how it is approached, and and it's true. I I really appreciated Matt Walsh's ability to not become antagonistic, even as people were being quite antagonistic to him. There's there's one exchange in there. Um, oh, I'll have to see if I can find the audio. Maybe I can pull this up in a future show where he's talking to the the uh, sexuality and uh, um. Oh, what was the guy's? He's a, a sexuality and gender studies professor, and the the professor starts starts really trying to do the turnaround on him. Well, why do you, why do you want to know this? You know, every time Matt asks him, well, what is a woman, or what is this, the guy turns the question, why do you need to know? Why, why does that matter to you? And finally, Matt starts talking about, well, I'm just trying to get to the truth of the matter. And this professor, I kid you not, says, well, that's a very arrogant and hurtful word that you're using. Truth. It's arrogant and it's hurtful. Now, I suspect he only feels that way because, as Andrea Woodbrook points out, he looks like a complete idiot when the truth is actually put on the table. When you say, well, what about this? Well, I can't acknowledge that. And, and again, the antagonistic folks are the ones who are trying to defend this particular brand of madness. And you're going to one thing that I know I came away with after watching the movie was uh, I I have great sadness and sorrow for the people who were duped into undergoing these uh, these irreversible, you know, gender reassignment surgeries and who realized afterward, oh, my gosh, this is this is a huge mistake. I think one of the statistics that was pointed out was somewhere 60, maybe 70 percent of those who undergo gender reassignment uh, surgery. Are at risk of suicide within the first ten years after that surgery. I know the you know the conventional wisdom answer is well, it's because people like you, Brian, ask questions and don't just you know unconditionally accept them. I don't think that's the case. These are children of God that we are talking about, and I think there are mind games going on here that uh, try to tether them to a to a kind of. Uh, mindset that is uh, very destructive you have to wonder where that's coming from
0: this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show hey welcome back to the show
1: sewing and is one of my sponsors for my southern Utah listeners, you are in luck because they have a store right there in your community, right there on Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Why should you go to Sewing and Quilting Center? Well, look, I understand not everybody sews, but for those who do, and guys, if if you if you really want to make yourself a, you know, a true renaissance man, these are skills you should probably pick up. And I promise you, you know someone in your life who loves to create beautiful things? through sewing, through embroidery, through long-arm quilting. It's it's very easy to do. You'll be amazed at the technology that's available. Sewing machines have come a long, long way. This ain't no just needle and thread, you know, and don't stick your thumb as you're trying to sew a button on. It's it's remarkable. Entry-level machines start for under $200, and from there, the sky's the limit if you want to really get into the top-end embroidery, you know, computerized embroidery and long-arm quilting machines. Get your questions answered at sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They service what they sell. They'll train you how to use your machine when you buy it from them. They have the supplies you need. It's all there in one place. You know, the people in the systems that are trying so hard to rule us just wrapped up their conference in Davos, Switzerland, uh, a few days back. And by all indications, they're feeling pretty froggy about their prospects. So if you need some encouragement to resist them, Got a great article here from Julian Charles. This is from offguardian.org. We create our own reality. Julian Charles says The world watched in varying states of mind as the Davos set enjoyed its annual turn on the world stage, supping on sumptuous Atlantic crab and fresh Iberian pork, sustainable Norwegian cod, and the best Italian coffee. When not tucking into a lavish feast, they bandied about their ideas for how the world ought to be exploited. The key euphemisms here are sustainable, stakeholder, and impossible beef. Now, some revile and protest the annual ruling class summit, but many millions more embrace it. Even gaze admirably at the mandarins of the new world order as they flit across mobile screens and offer uplifting quotes to curious media attendees. Indeed, few seem to care as the cabal of moneyed interests that chat amiably about centrally managed digital currencies, consolidating global health authority and unelected bodies, collapsing the world economy, generating needless food shortages, unpopular fake meat, and other new market opportunities. Fewer still see the implicit threat of globalist agendas to the rule of sovereign states. He says there's little resistance largely because billions of people believe what they read and what they are told by news media. A healthy dose of distrust would serve the global populace well if only it could release itself from the grip of mainstream corporate news. In this respect, it's worth remembering two quotes from the incomparable muckraker Upton Sinclair, author of the startling exposé The Jungle. In his book Brass Check, The Brass Check, rather, Sinclair betrays the great lie of modern media, namely that it is independent. This easy falsehood is widely accepted, Millions of Americans believe that the truly deceitful media are the ones that YouTube labels as state-affiliated media, a damning modifier that instantly discredits every media outlet so identified. But Sinclair reminds us that media represents private interests, not public interests. He could have gone farther and said mainstream media represents the private interests of elite capital. Marx said that every state serves a particular class. Well, so does corporate media. Sinclair later writes that it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Now, this second quote explains why so much of the MSM go along quite happily with the prescribed narrative from Washington. Their livelihoods depend on it. Occasionally, a pious mainstream journalist will fiercely declare his independence from any malign editorial influence. But as Michael Perendi responds, they like what you write because you write what they like. Julian Charles says the principles of American exceptionalism are a prerequisite for any journalist hoping to earn a slot at a high-paying MSM outlet. They have long internalized the values of power. Put together, these quotes tell us that we are subjected to an official narrative that serves the interests of elite capital and is dutifully disseminated by a cabal of right-thinking stenographers. The same elite interests that own the government own the media, hence the narrative consistency. Next, he talks about alternative reality. Given that the elite interests are largely out of step with the interests of the vast majority of Americans, we often find ourselves living in an alternate reality. The war in Ukraine is just the latest iteration. Most of the reality of the conflict has been obscured from view, sins of omission that ensure the public is largely misled. Fierce and principled op-eds reinforce the bias. For instance, little attention is paid to economic motivations underlying the conflict. Arm sales for American defense contractors, oil and grain profits by crisis-oriented commodity monopolies, and broader agricultural profiteering by Monsanto and DuPont via a post-coup IMF agreement, the foreclosure of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from the Baltic Sea into Germany, which opens the door to Western consortiums supplying the shortfall. Ukrainian academic Olga Baisha gave a telling interview to The Gray Zone. She noted how Volodymyr Zelensky's neoliberal policies were sold as westernization and modernization to the Ukrainian public. But these were camouflage for privatization, deregulation, and downsizing of the public sphere. All commonplace neoliberal prescriptions for wealth extraction by global corporations. To secure this narrative, Zelensky shuttered opposition from media channels and political parties, including sanctions and repression, before the final step. Zelensky was following the post-coup government's deployment of ultra-nationalist battalions to violently extinguish the anti-coup resistance in Donbass. That anti-terrorist operation was really the beginning of a civil war by Kiev against its own population, including tanks and artillery, gunships and warplanes. The subsequent minsk peace agreements were likewise largely ignored by the aggressive Kiev action against the East. All of these political and national conflicts seem to evolve from and devolve into imperial economic relations. West against East with Ukraine as a battleground. War is a revenue stream in capitalism. War is a profit center for the elites that own the media. It is only carnage for the lower classes, but this distinction is rarely made. He also talks about how social media has abdicated its role. What's uniquely, uh, what's relatively unique, rather, in the propaganda about the Ukraine war is the degree to which social media has advanced its repressive apparatus in line with state directives. Social media became a serious thorn in the side of state power and corporate media when it consistently exposed falsehoods about the 2016 election, Gate, and the pandemic. Through though much uh, war propaganda has been uncovered by scrupulous independent journalists with a working class bias the success of the ukrainian narrative has been stupendous social media is following and falling in line rather censoring or discrediting wrongthink whenever it appears what google and youtube and others are doing at the behest of the federal government is as brett weinstein said of the pandemic narrative they are infantilizing a huge fraction of the population they're making certain discussions off limits we must adhere to certain pre-digested conclusions and we pretend that they emerged from evidence which they do not. So what's the answer? Well, Julian Charles says what we need is rational discussion. The answer to bad speech is more speech, not less. One would expect Google and YouTube and Facebook and Twitter to know this. In fact, it's very likely they do. <clears throat> As the venerable linguist Politico Noam Chomsky once derisively commented, there's no point in speaking truth to power. They already know the truth and don't care. What has happened and what is 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 what happens to all new media in a corporate fascist state. It is threatened until it complies with the official narrative being disseminated by the government, which is effectively owned by elite capital. Congress may have a word with justice and justice may on a quiet Tuesday open the preliminaries of an antitrust investigation. Suddenly, the bright horizons of the Silicon Giants are considerably dimmed. And it's similar with the news media. The MSM rely too heavily on the gossip and good favor of well-placed officials. They bend too easily to the unspoken preferences of the advertisers who line their coffers. They keel too readily at the unctuous general who cavils over the soft treatment of a geopolitical rival. These perverse incentives are nicely modeled in manufacturing consent. Next he talks about the masters of myth and how they create myths that uh, that are widely accepted. There's wage slavery in public consciousness as well. There's ideologies and sub-ideologies. Reality repeats itself. Let me jump ahead to the conclusion here. Reclining in his sumptuous country estate, the elitist, the elitist Marquis tells Charles Darnay in a tale of two cities, quote, "Repression is the only lasting philosophy. The dark reference of fear and slavery will keep the dogs obedient to the whip as long as this roof shuts out the sky. Like Sinclair, Charles Dickens historicized his novels, which it might be noted that uh, the Marquis's venerable roof would soon fall in with the collapsing uh, scenery of the French Revolution. So the point here by Julian Charles is whenever we are sold those confident end of history tales from the corridors of elite power, be it a French chateau or a chalet in the Swiss Alps, we would do well to recall the timeless warning of every marketplace and bazaar: Caveat emptor. Let the
0: buyer beware. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, thanks for joining us
1: today. I hope this is wrong think that is enlarging your understanding of the world around us, as well as encouraging you to please make that stand. You don't have to go out there and self-immolate to draw attention to yourself, but you do need to stand firm, remain rooted in truth, and be willing to speak the truth even when everybody else is chanting a lie in unison. I know it's a hard thing to do. I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. And, and I will confess there is a price to be paid. That's the nature though of, of truth. And I think one of the strongest things that any of us can do, regardless of our station in life, you don't have to have a talk show, you don't have to have a podcast, you don't have to have a newspaper column or anything like that. All you have to have is a conviction of the truth and the willingness to speak it. A desire to not participate in the lie. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, live not by the lie. You're not trying to control other people, <clears throat> you're not trying to generate uh, dissent or, or uh, otherwise, you know, antagonize or, or marginalize other people. You are simply a person whose commitment to truth will not allow you to participate in a lie, no matter how widely that lie is accepted by others. It's a tall order. And yes, there is some pain involved. But the the end result is this. You and your conscience will be at peace, and there's also probably an unintended consequence that, that comes from this, and that is you will have impact on the world around you and I mean lasting impact that will help others find the light as well. Okay, speaking of finding the light, I'm going, to, I'm going to share in this last segment with you, this is a hard subject to talk about, but it's one that I think is really necessary considering what is coming at us at 100 miles an hour. It's the latest article from Brandon Smith on alt-market.us. The article's titled, Inflation Will Price Many Americans out of housing, and into homelessness. We need to understand this crisis for what it is. And we need to see it coming. And I, I'm not offering any guarantee, therefore we can do something about it. But we have more options if we understand what's coming at us than if we just turn a blind eye or try to pretend that this couldn't be. He says, one of the most detrimental aspects of an inflationary or stagflationary crisis is that in most cases, housing costs tend to rise even as home sales fall. Now, it might seem counterintuitive. One would assume that as sales fall, so should prices. But this is the upside-down world of inflation. Certain commodities and products, usually necessities, almost always skyrocket in price, ultimately driving most American families out of the market completely. One of the exceptions, or one of the only exceptions to this rule, is when government institutes rent or price controls. For instance, in uh, Weimar Germany... The government enforced strict regulatory controls on landlords, fixing rent at a rate that made profits impossible. Now, this might sound familiar. During the height of the COVID pandemic, the Biden administration established a lengthy moratorium on evictions, which made it impossible for many property owners to collect rent payments they were owed. Owners couldn't replace delinquent tenants with those willing to pay on time, leading to massive financial burden on property owners across America. And the effects of this were detrimental to both the U.S. economy and especially the rental market. How? Well, the moratorium awakened property owners to the reality that they could be unilaterally restricted from their own business. They could be stopped from collecting rent payments owed by tenants under contract while still being forced to pay taxes and maintenance expenses on those same properties. The entire rental market became a zero-sum game. In response, landlords begin selling their extra properties in droves instead of renting them out. Now, as you might expect, this has led to a shortage of rentals in many parts of the country. When supply is constrained, what does basic economics tell us must happen? The eviction moratorium led directly to much higher prices on the limited rentals that still remain. But it wasn't just a reduction in supply that caused the prices to rise. Those owners still willing to rent properties under the eviction moratorium had to increase prices to compensate them for the additional risks they were taking in a market where the rules suddenly changed. By placing the moratorium on rent, Biden made an existing housing crisis far worse. Which begs the question, who benefits from this manufactured crisis? Another factor to consider is this. Who were the buyers for many of these suddenly-for-sale properties? Massive conglomerates like Blackstone and Blackrock have been increasingly involved in the housing market since the crash of 2008. And while Blackrock claims it has no involvement with the single-family housing market, it works closely with companies that are involved, buying up multiple houses and bundles of distressed mortgages. Blackstone has continued to buy houses in bulk, For the past decade, removing properties from the market for a time, these mass purchases give the public the impression that local sales are hot and the market is thriving. As you might expect, these actions force prices up even further to meet this artificial demand. Now, currently, median sales prices of homes have spiked rather dramatically to all-time highs in the span of a couple of years, a 30% price surge coinciding with the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Now, part of the price inflation could actually be attributed to the large migration of Americans out of blue states to escape draconian COVID lockdowns and high taxes. But this migration has now died off. Housing sales are plummeting back to earth, yet prices remain higher than the average family can afford. In 2022, the median cost of a home in the U.S. is now $428,000. The average American makes around $50,000 a year or less placing them far outside the current market. In terms of rentals, the average cost in the U.S. has exploded to $1,300 per month for people that stay anchored to a location and $1,900 per month for people that relocate. This average is, of course, partially pushed up by the ridiculously high prices in major coastal cities like San Francisco, up 22% year over year, Los Angeles up 297% since January 2000, and New York, up 159% house inflation since January 2000. An individual today must make at least $20 an hour to afford a single-bedroom apartment. Consider that over 30% of Americans are paid less than $15 an hour. That's before taxes. Nearly half of the American population doesn't make enough money to maintain a one-bedroom rental. The vast majority of Americans will find it impossible to buy a home at today's prices. On average, an annual salary of $105,000 is recommended before taking on a mortgage for a $350,000 house. And keep in mind, as the inflation crisis accelerates, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates, which pushes up mortgage costs. So, where does this leave us? Well, Brandon Smith says it only gets worse from here. What comes next? Well, home buyers waiting for prices to track lower along with sales may find they're waiting around for a while. Now, this could change if the government enforces price controls on home costs. Now, granted, that's highly unlikely. He says, I think it's more likely that as inflation rises, the government would freeze monthly rents, but not home prices themselves. That said, if there was another moratorium on evictions or a freeze on rents, that landlords would probably sell off their properties en masse once again to avoid taxes and expenses on investments that are making them no money. That could lead to a larger drop in prices, but again, he says, I wouldn't hold my breath. One solution, one solution to the housing problem would be a moratorium on corporate purchases of homes. That would limit hedge funds and investment banks to speculating on industrial and retail properties. Now, personally, he says, I'm not a fan of the government insinuating itself into business, but maybe it's better to stop conglomerates from buying up American homes and driving up prices than it is to stop landlords from collecting rent. We also have to consider the very real possibility that global corporations devouring the U.S. housing market is part of a calculated agenda to make housing expensive. Price explosions caused by inflation like we're seeing today often last for many years, sometimes a decade or more. And when housing does finally deflate, it will only be under drastic economic instability. By that time, people will have much bigger concerns beyond whether they can take on a mortgage. Property rights and ownership are a primary pillar supporting a free society. When ownership is relegated to the upper middle class and the wealthy, the result is an inevitable social decline into various forms of feudalism or socialism. For those with authoritarian ambitions, housing inflation is a boon. Homelessness feeds the kind of desperation that drives the public to support totalitarian actions. And they may provide you with housing eventually, but it will be at a terrible cost. Brandon Smith says the last thing anyone with common sense would want is for the government to become their landlord by default. It's very hard to defy the trespasses of government overreach when that government controls the roof over your head. I know it's considered stigma, for instance, for adult children to be back at home living with their parents. Right, that's the sign of a failure. I live with my parents. But I wonder if we aren't going to see this become more of a cultural norm, not because it's trendy and fashionable,
0: but because it's just necessary. I guess time will tell. This is The Brian Hyde Show.